you were given some sticky notes. Does everybody have sticky notes? Okay, the sticky notes are for you to write down any question you want that your heart desires about 501c3 organizations, um, uh, anything you need answered. And it's all anonymously, so you, no one's going to know you wrote whatever you Welcome to 501c3 BS. I'm your host, Sue Velasco, director of the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton's Mihalo School of Business and Economics. Join me today as we debunk the myths of the social sector. We will cut down the weeds and clear your path for organizational growth. Um, this is a, a little... Today on 501c3BS, you get a free ticket to the G3X conference. In August 2018, I was asked to take over as interim director for the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton's Mihalo School of Business and Economics. Susan Cadwallader, the director, wanted to take a step back to focus on her research. I had been an advisor there for four years, and longtime listeners know that they sponsor this podcast. The timing of my hire was because the center was producing its annual conference for the sector. It was a large undertaking. At the helm, I was able to make some tweaks to the conference, tweaks I thought would make it more successful. We changed the name of the conference from the Summer School for Nonprofits to G3X with a mission of growing excellent and exciting exempt organizations in the region. That's where the three X's originate. The conference was an overwhelming success. I audio recorded most of the conference for you, the listeners, and we'll be using some of these recordings for this season of 501c3BS. This episode is one of two live panels we did answering the questions from the field. I hope you like it. And just a quick follow-up, after the conference, I have been asked to stay on as the director of the center, a job that I'm really enjoying. Thank you, Cal State Fullerton, and now, on with the show. And I'll introduce, everyone knows Jan, because she's been here all day and was our keynote. Jan Masoka is CEO of the California Association of Nonprofits, a statewide policy alliance of more than 10,000 organizations speaking to government, philanthropy, and the public at large. But I'll introduce our other panelist here is Victoria Torres, just back from a little leave of absence at uh, 1OC, and she is the person that pretty much, I don't know, in my estimation, she does everything at 1OC. And she's incredibly knowledgeable. She's the one who hires all the trainers. She sits through all the training. She's been involved with organizations. She works with their consultants. There isn't anything about this field in Orange County that she doesn't know. Oh, thank you. So, and you all know Jan, so I won't reintroduce Jan because she's a rock star now to all of you, as she was to me. We're recording this for our podcast, and hopefully you'll have some great questions. So if you have anything at all that it doesn't matter whether you think it might be a stupid question, the, prob- the fact of the matter is probably 10 other people have the same question. It's always hard to get the first one, and then there's like this avalanche of questions that happens once you start talking. So, it's, yes. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Somebody was telling that they can, uh, they can use, uh, you know, you can use their 501, uh, 503 yes. status. Is it uh, legal or you know, how do you That's a great question. So the question she's asking is, is it possible to, I, I think what you're saying is lend out your 501c3 to someone else? And the answer to that is kind of along the lines of what we call in the business fiscal sponsorship. And I will let my fellow panelists talk about fiscal sponsorship, unless you want me to. No, I can. At 1OC, we are a fiscal sponsor. Mm -hmm. So um, at 1OC, what happens is uh, you have a project idea, your program idea, and you don't want to go through the IRS or you don't want to go through all the, you know, 
back-end stuff, uh, 1OC will sponsor you, which means you come under our umbrella, our tax ID umbrella, and for a service fee, it ranges anywhere from 5 to 10% of revenue that you bring in, uh, we, we are your back office support. So we're your financial management, HR, uh, we'll handle your, your payroll, benefits. So in one, in a couple days, you automatically have this built-in HR finance. Even um, if you get a grant, we have a system that will do the grant reporting. Uh, what else? Uh, there's probably so much more that I'm missing. But it, pretty much it's a built-in um, support uh, system, and, and there's the payment is based on your revenue um, that comes in. There is an attendee who was here yesterday from an organization that does fiscal sponsorship. Is she still here today? Okay, um, but there are several in LA. There's community partners in Orange County. There's 1OC and charitable ventures and charitable ventures. There are a lot of national ones that are online. Mm -hmm. So, um, but you talked about giving somebody else your 501c3, right? So no, I want to use somebody else. Oh, you go on from there. So they can transfer it to you. Um, they just need to, if they have the some. If, is the kind of work you're doing similar to what they were doing? Do you have one in mind? Yeah, we have, we have like a um, uh, convention partner. We have cards like, you know, working with all the students. Right. And there are students who are from like other representatives uh -huh. who cannot afford it. Well, you can, you can make that work. There's just some paperwork that you'll have to do. And, and I'll also say, I mean, I also helped found a, uh, a fiscal sponsor that um, being uh, there are also risks of fiscal sponsorship. You know, we've had a number of gigantic problems with fiscal sponsors in California going broke and taking all the money with them and taking all their projects down with them. Um, so there, there's pluses and minuses to them. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add, so for 1OC, yeah, they all work differently. And mm -hmm. So at 1OC, our projects, we have about 40 projects, maybe a little bit more, out in the community, living and breathing as their own nonprofit. You would not even know that they're affiliated with 1OC. Uh, they have their own website, they have their own name, they have their own uh, bank account, I mean, which we, we can see because we're the fiscal oversight. Um, but the advantage of that has been, so when you write a grant, they're going to ask for your, your operating budget and they'll ask for your program budget. You write in, you, you have to write in 1OC as your fiscal sponsor. So e immediately they kind of know, oh, so you have someone overseeing you. And we have a 50-year history and experience that goes along with that. So that's one of those you know, positives is you, when you start writing for grants, you're writing things in that also not just pertain to you, but you also have to be open about 1OC. Um, and your board. So your board is our board. So you get all that, that history and you put their names down. And then there was something else I was going to mention. Um, oh, let, let me add something while you're thinking yeah. of the other thing. I don't need the mic. <laughs> you can hear me back there, right? Uh, one other thing is that you know, about three times a week somebody comes up to me and finds out what I do. And somebody today did it. and so A Fullerton professor did it. Comes up to me and says, I hear you work in nonprofits. How do I start a nonprofit? <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you all get this question a lot, right? Because of your job. So the answer that I give them is if at all you can help it, don't. Because when has it ever been a great idea well, to get. Well, let me just finish the. And then I'll disagree with you. Okay. okay. That's good. No, disagreement's good. It's a podcast. We want, we oh, want right, that. Right, right. Um, so I say, when is, it always, when is it ever a good idea to get involved with a large government bureaucracy if you don't have to? So what I suggest to them is it's always better if you can start at, with a fiscal sponsor and then work your way up to a point where you can get your 501c3 after you have a track record. Because you're thinking you're going to get that 501c3 so that you can get 
grants and you can get uh, donors and you know all these things, but you're not going to get those things until you develop a track record. So why be in a hurry to get that, that government stamp of approval? Well, I would just say, like, it depends, you know, and I don't, I don't, um, you know, whenever anybody wants, starting to not, people, you know, we, what happens when we give people too many reasons not to start a nonprofit, they don't always bring and have the same ability to be as flexible and as unconventional as they want to be. And um, and I, I just think sometimes we need to do that. And, you know, like for whenever, um, and there's a big section on our website about how to start one if you want to start one. But I also think like, you know, like suppose that there were like a young chef, a young Italian chef who had this idea for a different kind of Italian restaurant. We don't want to be the people that say to them, there's enough Italian restaurants. Why are you starting one? Or why don't you go work at Olive Garden for a few years first? <laughs> you know, we want to say to them, you know, go for it. <laughs> Right? You want to say for them, go for it, you know, and give them all the support and help that they want and can have. And I, I just want us to have more of that attitude rather than in the tend to say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, here's 25 things you need to know first. But don't, <laughs> but don't, you, think, don't you think that getting involved in the whole 51C3 process too early can also be stifling? Fiscal sponsors can be stifling too. Yes. I would say there's some kinds of organizations that fit that do sponsorship well, but even they typically do it better for some kinds of efforts mm -hmm. than for other kinds. Yeah. So, for example, 1OC may not be as good for an individual filmmaker mm -hmm. as it would be for somebody in human services. Yep. And, you know, community partners doesn't do international organizations right. at all. So, you know, it really depends. Yeah, and when we have said no to people, um, right. you have to come in with a business plan. We don't take anyone and everyone. You have to come right. in Same with an example. advisory board. You have to come in. You have to come in prepared. We don't just you know, right. take, take anyone and everyone. Um, but to Zoot's point, we have had very successful organizations that start with us, have grown to a million plus, and they have what we call they've emancipated mm -hmm. from um, the fiscal being a fiscal project, and they're now out on their own. And we help them through that process. Right. We've also had others who thought about going off on their own because our advisory board said, you know, why are we paying this management fee? Let's just be on our own. And we help them, um, you know, we have an assessment, uh, and uh, kind of an exit um, interview assessment, and afterwards they realize, no, I think we'll stay with 1OC. Huh. Because um, when they think about all the, fi the financial work alone, HR, mm -hmm. payroll, all the costs involved with that, they, they at least had a better understanding of how much they should reach to, to be better prepared financially to move out on their own. So that looks like we have a question. So the one thing I want to definitely disagree with you about is that Olive Garden is not Italian food. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I disagree with that. <laughs> Sorry? What are the documents you want? We have, a, we have a, I think, a three-page application and, 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 a business and your plan business plan. And an and advisory the, group. And, an, and we'll have an interview with you and we'll ask all the questions. And and it's on our website. It's available to anyone. And to do a 501c3, you would need some of the same things. Yes. yes. So, uh -huh. um, okay, the next question is, how best, how, what is the best way to scale up a, a pilot program? Do you want to answer that? I think that's a great one for you. Scaling up yeah. a pilot program? Whatever I say, Jan's going to disagree with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let Jan start. Bill, Wait, let's let Jan start, then uh, I can disagree with her. You know, um, <laughs> You can't make a generalization here, right? Because for a child care center to scale up, you know, one of the things they might need is a bigger building. 
Whereas for a different organization, they don't need a different building at all, right? So it's really hard to talk about this across things. And I, I do think that we have an enormous tendency in this country to create pilot pro programs. And virtually every pilot program has the same exact evaluation. And that is, it was really good, but it could have been better. And then nobody will ever fund the replication of a pilot program. That's like extremely rare. So as a result, we have to. We are all in the business of doing the same thing as a pilot program, described differently every three years. So actually, the scaling up thing. The other thing we know is that there's virtually not a single nonprofit in the United States that gets over seven million dollars that doesn't have government money. Okay, so that if you're talking about scaling up beyond five million, it's really going to be about government money, unless you're extremely, and I mean extremely, unusual. All right, so I'll disagree with mm -hmm. Jan now, <laughs> a little bit. Good. So I, I'm a big fan of the taco truck theory, which I don't know, maybe I coined that, I don't know, but if you want to start a restaurant, you don't like get everybody you know to give you all their money, and then you open the biggest restaurant you can, and then it fails within a year, and you've lost everyone's money. If you want to start a restaurant, you start with a, a little taco cart. And then the taco cart, you kind of figure out what sauces work and what people like, because you're you're doing things on a small scale, and if it fails, you haven't lost a lot. Then you move to a lunch truck, and then a fleet of lunch trucks, and then a brick and mortar, and then franchises, and you grow organically. And I think the same thing is true of programs. So I'm, I'm personally a big fan of pilot programs. And I am too. I'm just saying almost none of them scale up to a significant scale. So at, at the Muckenthaler, we started the first STEAM programs in Orange County. Uh -huh. And at the time, we were 20% in debt on a $400,000 budget. And we, we ended up with 12 STEAM programs in four school districts that made our budget $1.6 million. And it was in the black. So all of that happened because we would start one pilot program, we would evaluate the crap out of it in a real way, not what you mm -hmm. were saying, but in a real way, making sure we knew what was working, what wasn't working, not being too precious about it, pretty much what I'm going to be doing with this conference. So uh, figuring out you know, what's helpful, what's not helpful, and then fixing that the second year. And by the third year, you really know what you're doing and you have a, a, a product you can really sell. And we got a lot of contracts with other school districts because of those products. And then the school districts would partner with us on designing the next phase. And we ended up with 12 programs that way. So I, I'm a big fan of, of pilot programs that you scale because you do real true evaluations. So my niece is dating a guy right now who has a... a um, uh, it's like a hamburger truck, except on top of the hamburger, he has uh, kimchi and yeah, yeah. Um, some Korean barbecued meat. So it's kind of half Korean, half American burger. So I think maybe you should use that metaphor instead. Okay. They need to have a bulkogi burger okay. part. Well, here in Orange County, we, they invented the, the kogi taco, okay. so, oh, really? which okay. is the Korean so there, taco. So, so we, we know about that. Okay. Okay. This is a lot of fun right here. Just yeah, you get to be in the middle. <laughs> I'll just add, just a little add to that. When it comes to scaling, you know, I, you guys uh -huh. definitely had more experience in this area, but as I'm learning more and uh -huh. programming and scaling, I really believe that a big part of that is your process. So if you don't have a set process, and this is sometimes where I think nonprofits, we don't spend enough time thinking on the process of the product, or in our cases, sometimes it's a service, right? How the, ser the service is being delivered. And I think once, once that is really finalized or, or fine-tuned, I think scaling is easier. Um, and sometimes I, I'm a big strategy process type person. And in my experience, when I've seen organizations that have a good process down, it's, it's easier to scale up. And there is a peak. 
I agree with you. There, there does come a peak. At 1FC, there's been several programs where we're just like, no, we're at capacity. This is as, this is as far as it can go. And be honest yeah, about but, that. But by that so. point, you're at a place where you can then try new things. And, then, and looking at what's you're the at another next plateau. step. Right, yeah. what's the next step? Or what's the next service? You know, things are always changing and evolving um, with the click of a button now. And so. But a really good way to do this is to have a really important donor die and leave you $3 million. <laughs> Yeah, that's how you do it. Oh, actually, you know, we didn't really, I didn't really answer the question. Um, so when we did that scaling up, um, the, the way that we did it was to get funders involved on, when it was a pilot that's program. Right. You have and to. really, you know, uh, even if it was just for $1,000, getting somebody involved at a pilot stage and letting them own it so they're part of the mission. And then when it scales up, they're really feeling like it's their program and they want to scale up with it. Yeah. This is an old fundraising advice. So instead, when you want to ask people for money, instead of asking them for money, ask them for advice. Yes, oh, that's yeah. absolutely true. That's how, and then they give you money later. Ben Franklin. <laughs> uh, ben Franklin has something about that in his autobiography, about how this this. Ben Franklin said there was this guy that at the Continental Congress that did not like him, hated him, and he would borrow books from him and ask him for advice. And next thing you know, the guy loved him, and he was like his best friend. They became colleagues. So, okay, next question. What is the greatest threat to the nonprofit community in the next five to ten years? I have ideas about this, but I think... Okay, let's hear your ideas. <laughs> uh, okay, the way that money is given is going to drastically change in the next 20 years. Um, and we'll see it in the next five to ten years for sure. We're seeing it now. And what I mean by that is my generation is the baby boom generation. I'm the youngest of that generation. And... My generation, I think, is the last to really give endowment income. I don't, I don't think personally that Gen X and millennial, millennials are going to give endowment income in the same way my generation did because of the Internet and because of the way they think and the way they give is different. And I don't mean to suggest that they're in any way cheaper or, uh, you know, or have different moral standards. I just mean that they're going to do things in a different way. And that way is going to be web-based. And so I think one of the threats is that um, in 20 years, small organizations that never work to create an endowment are going to regret it. And I think it's very smart for small organizations to create an endowment earlier, um, be before that generation is gone. And I think it's something that we often overlook or think is for bigger organizations. And, uh, and I think it's something that we can all easily do just by talking about it regularly, about uh, those people that care about us, including us in their estate plans. And it's just it, that simple. It's not that hard. But if they hear it constantly um, over a long period of time by many people, it's something they'll do. And I, I try to get our board to all have us in their estate plans as a board. Or why are they sitting on the board if they don't care enough to put us in their estate plans? It doesn't cost you anything to put somebody in your estate plan while you're alive. And you could put in a very small percentage in your estate plan of your estate, and that could mean a lot to an organization. Another old fundraising joke is that in the world of fundraising, nobody ever dies, their gift matures. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to add to that question? Oh, well, okay, so I would say number one, I mean, I have to admit that I'm constantly afraid of an asteroid hitting the Earth. <laughs> All right, but aside from that, I think... Um, <clears throat> Well, first of all, I'm not worried about the nonprofit sector. I am worried about certain organizations, but I'm not worried about the sector. Just like, you know, there are dance organizations that are going to fail, 
And but do I think there will always be nonprofit dance? Yes, I do. Um, because you know, as long as there's one or two people that want to do something, they can start a nonprofit and get to work on it. So, I think writ very large. I'm not worried about us as a community. Um, I, I do think that um, the probably the biggest threats to us are related to government funding. Number one, because government funding fuels so much of particularly health and services, but other things, children's services, uh, older people's services as well. Um, and I think the um, and, I, and I think the other thing would be tax structure. There are already more and more attacks on nonprofits tax exempt basis because people want they want tax money and so I think that the erosion of our taxes yeah, that's like true. Uh, uh, there's a bill that was just passed you may know in Congress last the end of last year which means that if you have a certain employee like suppose that you give your employees paid parking let's just say okay free parking and you pay for that now for every dollar that you for every dollar that you give in, in employee parking now you have to pay the government 21 cents in taxes so this is going to mean that a lot of people, so for some organizations, that's fifty dollars and $60,000 a year in taxes that they're paying because they have hundreds of employees for whom they provide free parking. And so that's the kind of thing that's going to, that's, that kills their budget. I mean, and so that's the other thing is these ways of taxing us that I think are going to be in, uh, a huge attack. And then I think finally, I think that um, what could hurt the nonprofit community um, is just uh, people giving up. So, you know, people just saying, oh, you know, uh, it's just hopeless. And that, that's the thing that would keep us, I think, down. But um, as I said, I think I worry for a lot of organizations, but I don't worry for, about us overall. So before Victoria says her um, uh-huh. doomsday advice, uh, is there anyone else that have any questions out there? Just shake them so that we can get them up here. We only have one question left. I think we have time for at least two. So um, I, I, that's a very good point. I, I often forget about the political realm of how it affects our sector. Uh, so just because of the nature of my job, I feel the, the greatest threat, it, which I think is also an opportunity, is uh, talent and development of the next generation that's going to take over the nonprofit sector. So, um, you know, a lot of you have heard, you know, the, the boomers can't retire. The boomers are just now retiring. Um, a lot, a lot of it. What I hear is, well, I don't, I don't, I don't have anyone to succeed me. Or I don't. That's their. That's, I, <laughs> yes. Christ, that is a complete yes. myth. Every generation has history. Total BS. Right. You know, yes. has always felt that the younger generation isn't as good. Yes. And every no. generation in history has also thought, why the hell won't those old people get out of the way? Yeah. <laughs> so, absolutely true. So that mindset, I think, is a bit of a threat because we need to get past it and we need to to grow and. So part of 1OC, you know, what we do is we do training and development, and we have a great initiative going on right now where we're able to give training to 50 organizations at no cost and because we want to be a part of that leadership development and that succession and, and mm-hmm. bringing the next generation through. Uh, and so with that, I think the threat is just um, knowledge and mindset of what do we want the next generation of nonprofit to look like. So I think the opportunity there is our generation has this platform to change the funding cycle, to be mindful of how taxes are going to affect us right. because we're the ones that are going to feel it, both in our bank account and, and moving on. So I, I, I think, think we Actually, have I feel like the generational handover has already passed the tipping point. Yeah. It's not like it's coming. We're already on the downside of it. Yeah. Question on that? Yeah. Just to further that along, do you, do you see or do you worry about 
brain drain, talent drain because of the disparity and mm. what nonprofits generally pay and compensate versus people in the private sector? Did you want to go ahead? Oh, I know. I think that's a really good question, and so I can only answer it from a you know Orange County based standpoint because you know we are in one of the um, uh, highest you know cost of living is the highest mm. here. And from studies that we've done, when we've asked about compensation and pay, there is a, I want to say, almost unanimous answer to, you know, if you had the opportunity to leave for more pay, would you? And people come back saying, no, because I'm here because of the mission. Mission is so huge when it comes to the nonprofit sector and why people stay. So if... It, so to answer yes a little bit, it, it's becoming more competitive, and uh, nonprofits I think are wising up to that, and they're looking at flexible, you know, flexible um, time, you know, work from home, um, more benefits and incentives. Some even are even offering incentive programs as a part of their compensation plan. Mm-hmm. So while they're trying to keep up with the for-profit sector to not lose people, I truly, truly believe if you find when you're hiring. If you hire the person for their mission and passion to your mission, I don't think you have to worry too much about them leaving, um, because we we really do they really do stick to the things that they love. And we did a we did a podcast <laughs> earlier with the Bureau of Labor Statistics. They did a whole study showing that our sector and the for-profit sector are in complete parity in terms of uh, job pay and benefits, and in some cases we have better benefits. There's, it's a big myth. It's a lot of BS, this idea that we're all underpaid and that we're not making any yeah. money. And I, and I think us perpetrating the myth is, is not productive either because, because it's going to be, uh, the, the, you know, I, I see students here all the, all the time and they say, why would I want to go into your sector because there's no money in it? And I have to go through this whole thing dispelling this myth, but they, I think sometimes we perpetrate that. Just say fine. We don't need you. <laughs> um, well, I would say that the biggest problem is comparing size. Okay, yeah. people. When people say like, "Well, I work at a 15-person nonprofit and we don't have the benefits that say Google does," well, if you work at, if you look at a 15-staff person for-profit, you probably have better salary and exactly. benefits. So a lot of it is precise. But in terms of, I think where it makes a big difference is and depends on the type of position. So, for example, I mean, I'm a former accountant. Accountants can move between sectors more easily than can say um, a social worker and there are no private sector jobs for social workers so we're not competing we're never competing with the private sector for that so you, you can't really just look at it across it's really sector by sector when I wrote the book on HR for nonprofits I did a lot of interviews with HR directors around the country and one of them I interviewed who I found extremely interesting she had been an HR manager for Budweiser in Milwaukee and she went from there to being the HR director for uh, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin. So, like, okay, totally different cultures, totally different genders, you know, I mean, really different. And so she, was, she gave a great example. She says, when I'm hiring an engineer at Budweiser, I know exactly how, what I have to pay so that I'm in par with, you know, Miller and, you know, and other places. And I know the 20 schools that that engineer probably went to, you know, I know how to, this is pretty... Straightforward. She says at Planned Parenthood, it's completely different. At Planned Parenthood, you start with the universe of people who like Planned Parenthood. Because the person who doesn't like Planned Parenthood, you can't get them at any price. Okay? And then you have an accountant who wants to leave Budweiser and work for Planned Parenthood because their sister died of a botched abortion, and they'll work for anything. So she says you can't really... So she says that she had to completely change the way she thought about recruiting. And that it's not... and 
you know, there's pluses and minuses, but I, I just thought that was such a dramatic example. Agreed. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, next question. What are important, what are the most important leadership qualities to use in, a, in an organization? Which I don't think are any different than leadership qualities you would use anywhere. And, and I always tell people when I teach, I teach leadership at Cal Poly, and I tell people that leadership is not that different than parenting in a lot of ways. Like it's a lot of the same skills, mm -hmm. you know, because if you're inconsistent but as- look at how many awful children we have in the world. Well, <laughs> I didn't say everyone was a good parent, oh, just like okay. not everyone's a good leader. I mean, everyone can talk about bosses they've had who were terrible bosses. There's a lot of bad leaders in the world and there's a lot of bad parents in the world. But the thing that makes a good leader also makes a good parent, which are things like being consistent, you know, consistent when you discipline your kids, but also when you praise your kids. Um, by being the, the bow and not the arrow, you know, I think a lot of parents, especially I think this generation and Gen Xers, a lot of parents are helicopter parents that are always there with their kids and a lot of bosses are like that, micromanagers. They're not being the bow, letting the, the arrow fly away from them and fly farther than them, meaning their children and their employees. So, you know, you could really use that metaphor both ways. And I think uh, that's what makes good leaders is when someone inspires confidence in the people that work under them to go off and be great leaders after them. And I think to do that, one thing in my career that I attribute to my success and, and growth is transparency, especially in this sector. I think I've um, elevated and grown to where I am because I've had um, bosses that are not afraid to share financials, to share reasoning behind things, and that's where I've learned more about the sector, to understand why my pay is what it is, to, to change my mindset about what this sector is all about, because uh, if I hadn't, then I think I would get more frustrated and run down and, you know, what's the, you know, mission just overload, <laughs> but because I understand more nonprofits better because of the transparency that was the given, because I know there are some nonprofits Oh, the high level information stays high level. It's not trickle down. But when you trickle it down and you give your staff that, that courtesy, you know, of knowing what it is, um, they're not going to be shocked at why things get cut or discretionary funds happen. That happened with our organization one year. Uh, we, we, we saw a program not going to do well, and very early on, our upper management, you know, leadership said, we have to start cutting some funds so that we don't cut human capital. And we all rallied around that, but it's because we were always at the table. So I've always valued mm -hmm. transparency in, um, in leadership. I think those are really great pieces of advice for managers and bosses and organizations. But I think a lot of leadership isn't necessarily about management and organizations. Mm -hmm. And it's about community leadership. And, and you know, I'm actually, when people say to me, I want to be a leader, I feel like I'm just not interested in you. If you say something like, I want to change healthcare in the Filipino community, then I'm really interested in you because I know that you will become a leader in order to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think, um, and as I said earlier, I think instead of thinking about what kind of a leader do I want to be? I prefer the question, you know, what kind of a leader does my organization need me to be right now? That was really interesting this morning. I'm going to think a lot about that. Yeah. Thank you for listening to 501c3BS programming for organizational growth. I'm your host, Zoo Velasco. 501c3BS is sponsored by 
the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First Hundred Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choral group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.